Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Glad you could be with us today. Parts of Minnesota are once again under winter storm advisories and warnings, and it's been a year of unusual and extreme winter weather. This winter is already the eighth snowiest winter on record here in the Twin Cities, and it's only March. And we're not the only ones dealing with extreme weather. As you know, there's been snow and flooding in California, blizzards across the Midwest, and huge storms in the east. So what is going on? Today, I have three experts on the line to talk about the impact of the changing climate, how it's related to extreme weather, and tell us about possible solutions. And I definitely want to hear from you, too. We're taking your phone calls. If you've lived in Minnesota for many years, do recent winters feel different than winters of the past? Have you noticed changes in the temperature, the snow or the ice and wondered if it's related to climate change? What questions do you have for our guests? Call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000. Or you can also call 800-242-2828. You can leave me a message on Twitter, too. I'm at Angela Davis MPR. Let's bring in our guest. Kenneth Blumingfeld is with us. Now, Kenny is the senior climatologist at the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And in that role, he helps gather historical climate data to address questions about the impact of climate on Minnesotans. Good morning to you, Kenny. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you. Yes. And uh, also on the line, we have Amdalat Ajasa. Amdalat is a weather and climate reporter for The Washington Post, who covers extreme weather and its effects on communities. A few months ago, The Post announced that it was expanding its climate coverage and increasing the number of journalists who cover climate issues. And Amdalat is part of that team. Plus, she grew up in the Twin Cities. Good morning to you, Amdalat. Thank you for making time for us. Good morning, Angela, and thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. Also, we have Heidi Roop. Heidi is the director of the Minnesota Climate Adaptation Partnership and an assistant professor of climate science at the University of Minnesota. She also serves as a University of Minnesota Extension Specialist for Climate Science and Adaptation. Hi, Heidi. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, here in Minnesota, as as you have heard throughout the morning, we've got rain, sleet, and snow in the forecast just today. Another winter storm moving in today, Kenny. And and are we still at this point, as I said earlier, the eighth snowiest winter on record in the Twin Cities? Is that right, Kenny? Yes, that is correct. Uh, We, you know, we've been moving up uh, a spot or two every week for the past few weeks. So it's uh, probably going to make up some more ground. This week, too. And as you interact with people, are folks saying, Kenny, there's a lot of snow this winter. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a sense, we're almost getting used to it because we've had a lot of snowy winters recently. Uh, The 2017-18 and 2018-19 winters uh, were were also quite snowy. In fact, the 17-18 winter, just what is that, six years ago, uh, that we had to actually kick that one out of the top 10 when we made our first move in here this year. So, uh, yeah, but people are wondering about it. And, you know, it's been a really what we call an active pattern with lots of different storms affecting the region. And one of the things that's also true is it's not just been snowy. I mean, we're way above normal for snowfall, but we're also way above normal for rain during mm-hmm. the winter. We've had a lot of rain across the whole state. And so that's driven our total precipitation way, way, way above normal. Mm-hmm. And it, it's also made it, I guess, make, increase people's awareness because it's become, you know, that, that nuisance sort of, you know, situation in terms of just trying to walk, not only drive as we get around. Oh, yeah. I mean, depending on where you live, you may have 
like a baby glacier <laughs> taking over part of your street. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of us in, in certain residential areas are, have become accustomed to these gigantic deep yeah. ice ruts. Yeah. And your wheels just have to go into those ruts, slippery sidewalks, uh, you know, and then also as we've been getting warmer, including not just now, but other parts of this winter, we've melted some of that snow. And then, of course, it would refreeze mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, slick ice on the sidewalks and on driveways. So it's been a pretty uh, hazardous winter also from a, just a, a safety and balance perspective. Absolutely. And, and Heidi, uh, what do you make of the weather we've been having this winter as we speak of baby glaciers in our yards? Uh, how unusual is, is all of this to you? <laughs> well, you're asking someone who studies glaciers in part for a living. So I'm a bit biased there. But of course, we don't study the, the glaciers in our in our roadway, roadways and walkways and driveways. Um, you know, I think this, the challenges that, that we're talking about, these real world sort of here and now challenges of, of the sort of winter weirding, if you will, um, these warm winters with snow and then rain and not really knowing what to expect. Mm -hmm. um, while we don't attribute, you know, a single season to climate change, uh, when we look at the big picture, um, this change toward, towards the storm or water, warmer and wetter and, and oscillation between the snow um, and the rain is, is really what we anticipate the sort of fingerprints of climate change sort of look and feel like. And so um, we are, of course, of a living in a climate changed world already. This isn't off, far off in the future. It's here and now. And um, we see even nationally that average winter temperatures um, have increased by 3.2 degrees Fahrenheit since just 1970. Um, and that's a recent analysis that's been done by colleagues of, of Kenny's and mine at Climate Central. And so, as you, you said, the, the fingerprints of climate change, and that's one of, one of them, the, the average winter temperatures going up? Yep, winter uh, winter's warm. They're warming faster. It's in fact the fastest warming season for much of the United States, um, and and true here in Minnesota too. Um, and can, a lot of Kenny's data can points that out very clearly that our winters are in fact our fastest warming season, um, well above the average annual warming that we've experienced as a state. And then from that emerges these patterns um, of change between snow and rain, and that warming of course contributes to all sorts of impacts, um, quite literally downstream as we think about changing precipitation patterns. Mm. And Andalat, uh, you're there at the Washington uh, Post. You cover extreme weather and how it affects communities. I mentioned in the intro uh, that the, you know, that the newspaper, you know, announced that we're going to expand our climate and weather coverage. We're going to uh, increase the number of reporters dedicated to this. How is that talked about at the Post? What are they saying about why they're throwing more resources at this? Yeah, uh, climate for the Post understands that climate change isn't going anywhere and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. So um, they they were really dedicated to expanding our coverage and expanding our team of experts because we want to be a reliable go-to source for people when we see an increase in headlines and stories surrounding not only extreme weather events, but climate change and the future. And so a lot of the work your team is doing, from what I've seen, is trying to explain like what some of the terms that we're seeing and, and sort of, you know, the impact of this extreme weather. Exactly. We want to be able to be, again, a good resource for people, but also to make climate change digestible for the average person. You know, mm -hmm. you don't want to have to be a scientist to understand, oh, this is why it's really warm this winter, or this is why we're experiencing uncharacteristic flooding here in California. You know, we want people, we want to meet people where they're at, and we want people to understand um, 
that this mm-hmm. is a larger issue. Right. And give us an idea. I mean, it, it's a team of reporters and editors. The range of stories that you and your colleagues have been covering uh, when it comes to weather and climate issues in just the last few months. Ah, that's, <laughs> we that's we have a huge team, so we're always doing stories. I mean, some of the stories range from extreme weather events, like what the atmospheric rivers we're seeing in California, um, higher than normal tornado season in parts of the South, um, mm-hmm. and then overall climate stories in terms of resiliency, adaptation, what the future is going to look like. It's been a large spectrum of stories. Now, a lot of us here in the Midwest have been watching um, and seeing the video in California a few few days ago. You wrote about the flooding in California. Um, Tell us about that story and and what happened there, Amdalad. Yeah, so again, atmospheric rivers in California aren't aren't necessarily uncharacteristic, But um, being blanketed by atmospheric rivers when you also just received huge snowstorms just days before Mm -hmm. is is pretty major. Um, So, yeah, they got a colossal amount of snow that blanketed huge parts of the region. And then just days later, they were hit with waves of torrential rain. Um, Millions of Californians were under flash flood threats. just just warnings across the region. And it is it is uncharacteristic. I spoke with somebody from the National Weather Service who said no one in this office has seen anything like this before. Mm. Um, and, and like we said, you know, it's not that California hasn't seen flooding before, despite, you know, lots of headlines talking about the extreme drought that they've been under. But it's the fact that we're seeing these these extreme weather events be way more intense mm-hmm. and, and fast moving, flipping from, again, colossal snowfall to huge flash floods. Mm. And uh, Kenny and, and Heidi, as uh, you know, I think about you all probably watching the news and, and video. What do you make of, of what we've seen in California, that heavy snow and, and then the flooding? Kenny? I mean, so, you know, California has a famously volatile climate already. They go, they oscillate between, uh, you know, periods of boom and bust uh, Mm. pretty regularly. And what it's, what's been happening recently is that's been amplified. So going there is still in the midst of kind of what's considered a mega drought, but they have gotten so much. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about it. They get huge drought, but they've also had so much precipitation. The, the correct term, I guess would be that, you know, we've taken the normal pattern and just amplified it with basically what that means is greater extremes. And, you know, because we serve Minnesota here at the climate office, we work for the state of Minnesota and the people of Minnesota. We also have been looking increasingly at how these systems are actually tied in with what we experience here. And so if you remember, and I don't expect listeners to actually recall all of the snowstorms that Thank affected you. the area. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, that's our that's our job. But okay. we got hit by a really big one in January. And that was actually the first time that we could really detect a clear signature between one of these atmospheric river events and all of the moisture and energy associated with, with it, which then had to jump over the Rocky Mountains, which usually destroys weather systems. But this, some of this energy and moisture actually made the jump over the Rocky Mountains intact and then came up and merged with the stream of moisture that normally feeds our winter storm. So we kind of got this two-pronged attack, part of which was from 
uh, the atmospheric river. And that's what the storm that we ended up calling the big mess, which just produced <laughs> about 15 inches of snow over the Twin Cities metro area mm-hmm. and much of southern and central Minnesota. And that was the one in January. And we're starting to see more influence of those types of systems on our climate. Now, some of this is because we, we have better detection capabilities, but some of it's also because these normal events are coming in bigger and stronger. And this is also something I know that Heidi has looked at uh, on the West Coast and in the Northwest. Yes, Heidi, uh, when you watch some of the news coverage, see the video of California, the, the piles and piles of snow, then the flooding and the droughts that they've had, uh, what do you think? What do you, what do you see in that as a climate scientist? Well, I see the real challenges of managing for a climate-changed world. So I actually work a lot with water resource managers in the state of California, um, thinking about how do you plan for these extremes, you know, two very terrible extremes, right? Mega drought, sustained drought, long-duration drought, paired with extreme precipitation events, um, you know, layer on that uh, a context of wildfire, which changes the conditions in which that sort of moisture from these atmospheric rivers is delivered, increasing other risks like landslides um, and other really detrimental impacts to people, to habitat, to infrastructure. Um, and I really, I think a lot about how hard it is to make decisions um, and look forward um, when we think about climate change and how do we plan for these impacts? How do we make the necessary upfront investments today um, mm-hmm. rather than being reactive to these impacts, which of course we have to do? How do we start to shift into a more proactive stance, making mm-hmm. sure we're prepared to protect people? Um, we have the right emergency response systems that we're taking care of people's health and well-being and providing critical services like clean, safe drinking water, um, while also thinking about what does it mean to make sure there's clean, safe drinking water, that we're managing lots of water on the landscape effectively. So how do you do that in a drought? You have to store water, in theory, um, but then in floods you want to get rid of water. And so it's this really terrible, difficult tension um, where people have a lot of creative solutions, but where you know the resources and the prioritization of this in terms of policy and regulatory frameworks really hinders our abilities to adaptively manage and, and really think about how we can more effectively weather the storm um, without the consequences to people and to our vital natural resources. And Angela, I know this is an area of interest of yours when we talk about the impact of extreme weather and climate change. Uh, we know that not everyone is affected equally by climate change. Angela, what can you tell us about who is most affected by the changing climate? Angela, are you there? Okay, we may have lost my connection with her, but uh, let's take some phone calls from listeners. Uh, We're talking about climate change and extreme weather. And if you've lived in Minnesota for years, do recent winters feel different than winters of the past? Have you noticed changes in the temperature, the snow, the ice, and wondered if it's related to climate change? What questions do you have for our three guests? You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000, or you can call 8 800-242-2828. Let's go to Minneapolis where Chris is on the phone. Chris, thank you for calling in. And what did you want to ask or share? Hi, Angela. Hey, question, uh, you know, the the term uh, climate fingerprints was kind of interesting. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if another one would be the increase in the amount of, I'll say, tick-borne diseases, for example. Growing up at the cabin, we'd always have lots of wood ticks and they were more of a nuisance. But now with so much Lyme disease around, I'll say in the past 10 years, it's become really a hazard. Mm. Are those kinds of things climate finger change fingerprints? Or is that just 
climate uh, uh, adapting to a, 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 a colder climate or a warmer climate. So those are the questions I have. Good question. Uh, Chris in Minneapolis, and Heidi, I'll ask you this. Uh, the impact on our ecosystems, the plants, the animals, habitats, ticks. Uh, Chris is wondering about ticks and, and maybe, you know, the impact then on, on Lyme disease because of changing weather patterns and climate change. What can you tell him about that? Yeah, you know, it's a great observation and one that does have a very clear climate change connection. Um, The CDC and others monitor um, both the incidence of Lyme disease cases. Um, It's, I think, generally thought to be an underestimate because they have to be reported and aggregated. But we can very clearly see on maps, um, and this is also reported in the National Climate Assessment, there'll be a new report coming out um, at the end of this year, which sort of is the state of climate knowledge for the United States. Um, And we, we actually discussed discuss this in in that work and and demonstrate very clearly this both expansion of the range and an increase in the incidence of Lyme disease and also new pest and disease pressures both on people and and habitat and our our natural environment too. Um, So we think about the the increased pressure and arrival of invasive species. I've been working with um, actually National Wildlife Refuges, and, and I'm in, in Illinois, and they were talking about the arrival of armadillos and um, mm. that not being a thing, and really warming winters having a very clear connection to keeping that the the armadillos and other things out. So we see very clearly both both these. Um, tick-borne illnesses and other incidents of, of pests and disease pressure really having impacts on people and, and habitat and wildlife. Kenny, what do we know about uh, insects and particularly ticks and how you know, we may be seeing a change based on the weather changing? Yeah, I mean, some of, the, some of our colleagues in DNR have looked at this uh, pretty closely because, of course, as a resource, natural resource agency with all the lands and state parks and whatnot that we manage, this is a big concern. And it's pretty clear, uh, as Heidi mentioned, I mean, basically, when, when you warm the climate, you know, you're warming the whole system. And so we are taking our normal temperatures, we've increased them by about three degrees Fahrenheit over the last 125 years, with even more warming, uh, several degrees of warming during the winter time, And you know, people like to joke about how severe our winters are, you know, uh, we kind of have a love-hate relationship with them. But one of the one of the functions that winters everywhere serve is they actually serve as kind of a, they're kind of ecological gatekeepers, right? If it's, mm. if the temperature is cold at a certain level, say negative 30 or negative 40 degrees, right. that, that, that determines what can and cannot survive. Right. And, and as these conditions have changed, where, uh, you know, we don't get as cold as we used to with the same frequency. That has actually allowed more species to thrive. So like it's mos- not like it's, mosquitoes, right? Yeah, well, mosquitoes have, you know, and there's also other things going on, right? So it's not just the climate. There's also human landscape interactions and land use changes, too. But one of the things we know is, like Heidi said, that these other species are kind of marching northward. It's slow. Right. But they are they are slowly making their way into new territory because the climate is more suitable than it had been. So you can kind of watch as, you know, the USDA, that's the Department of Agriculture, has these uh, basically growing zones that are Mm -hmm. essentially determined by the coldest night of the year. And we've watched over the last few decades as those have just shifted northward by, you know, anywhere between 100 and 200 miles and so, you know, everything's kind of on the move. And as new species get introduced in the new ecosystems, there's other dynamics at play that determine who's going to make it, who's going to die out, who, who can survive. So it's actually more than just the migration 
of species to different latitude zones. It's mm-hmm. also the interactions of those species with what already was there. All right, we have Undalot back there at the Washington Post, a, a climate and weather reporter there. Undalot, I was asking you earlier, uh, as we talk about the impact of climate change, uh, we know that not everybody is, is equally affected by it. And what can you tell us about what you have found and, and what research has shown who is most impacted by the changing climate? Yeah, so sorry for that hiccup. We love when the internet goes out. But (laughs) I will say that climate change, you know, disproportionately impacts some communities more than others. Um, Underserved and vulnerable communities are least able to prepare for and recover from things like heat waves, poor air quality, flooding, and and other extreme weather events. Um, And communities that face heightened risk include, you know, communities of color, low-income individuals, the elderly, elderly, um, children, and coastal communities. So those communities are more impacted by climate change. And again, climate change impacts everybody, but some communities are just going to kind of face a disproportionate brunt of these extreme, these extreme weather events and mm-hmm. these these climate changes. And those are some of the stories that you're trying to um, to, to to get to to cover these uh, stories of people and communities impacted by weather events in your job there as a, a weather reporter. Exactly. You know, not all of those stories get a lot of attention, and some of those, a lot of people. This sounds sad, but, you know, suffer in silence. So that's mm-hmm. exactly what I was hired to do was highlight that these communities are facing that that extra burden because, like I said before, you're not able to prepare for extreme weather events and you're not able to recover from them mm-hmm. as easily. And then with climate change making these events more prevalent and more intense, you're just going to continue to be battered um, from storm to storm, from extreme weather event to extreme weather event. Yes. Let's take a phone call from a listener. Again, we're uh, talking about our recent winters and asking, do you do they feel like they feel different than winters past? Have you noticed changes across the year in the temperature uh, that we're seeing here in Minnesota? What questions do you have for our guests, two scientists and a journalist? Uh, in St. Paul, we've got Mike on the phone. And again, I'm sorry, the number to call, 651 227 651 Two two seven six thousand. Hey, Mike, there in St. Paul. What did you want to ask or say? Yeah, just uh, I grew up in Chicago. This reminds me of a Chicago winter now. Uh, <laughs> but I want to say hello to Kenny. Um, this is Mike Loops, uh, and say hello to Pete and Luigi back in the office. Um, but my question is: Okay, I've been um, uh, talking about climate change due to global warming to my relatives, friends, and people I hang out with, and even people I meet on the street. And uh, you know. They're pretty much on board with this. Um, where do I go from here? What can I do to change policy and actions, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to get mm-hmm. and not necessarily solve the problem, but may, not make it as uh, worse as it probably will get? Mike in St. Paul wants some action. Well, Mike, you'll like this. Heidi Roop. Heidi, our guest, uh, you have a book coming out next week, right, called The Climate Action Handbook. What's in this book? And, and first of all, why did you want to write about it? Yes, I'm very excited and equal parts nervous. Um, so yes, next week um, have a, a labor of love <laughs> finally coming out in the world, and it's a um, the Climate Action Handbook, a visual guide to 100 climate solutions for everyone. Um, and really, the motivation for the book was that I had 
pretty terrible answers to that very question. Um, I think Kenny and I um, give a lot of talks around the state um, and the region, and you know, inevitably, right? We can talk about the problem, mm-hmm. um, but we gotta be focused on the solution. I think you know, we we actually see polling in the state of Minnesota shows that seventy six percent of Minnesotans are concerned about climate change. Eighty three percent want to see state and local um, governments doing more to address the problem, um, and so there's an opportunity for us to engage, and that really I think is in the solution space. And um, the book talks about all sorts of things from how you start your climate action journey, um, thinking about energy production, transportation, the ways we travel and work, um, how to support nature-based and natural solutions, what we can do at home, how we can engage at community and sort of civic levels, and then the important role of education and climate communication, um, which the caller just mentioned as well. So really was an attempt to inform my own climate journey and to ensure I had a tool in my toolbox to help people um, see themselves in climate solutions because mm-hmm. I find the narrative very exclusionary. So when we think about what we're in, what we need to do to confront this challenge, to, to reduce the impacts, to preserve the things we care about, maybe our, our wild and fantastic winters here in Minnesota. Um, how do we <laughs> Wild show and up? fantastic. I'm going to write that down next time I'm feeling sad. It's just a wild and fantastic <laughs> weather event. Yes, uh, right? There you go. See, it's all about framing and a mind shift. And I think that's true for climate solutions. It's not all sacrificial. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not all giving things up. Um, certainly, many of us need to change our behaviors and think about the role we play. Um, but we also need to welcome more voices and perspectives and experiences um, and knowledge into this space. Um, And we think about solutions both as preventing the problem from getting worse. So these are things we typically call mitigation. That's um, electrifying your home, uh, driving an electric vehicle, things we hear about a lot, but that can be really costly. Um, We also have to prepare for the change that we've already committed to. We have warmed the world and we know that we have set in motion quite a few changes we're going to have to manage for in the future. So we also Mm. have to think about how we prepare. Um, How do we prepare individual families? Um, This can be thinking about our own um, emergency management kit, our own stay home, you know, your go bag and your stay kit. Do you have the resources to, quite frankly, weather the storm? Um, If you don't, then you can't help your neighbors. Um, You will need to rely on resources that maybe others might need more urgently than you. So thinking really holistically about the ways we show up and and the multitude of ways we show up. It's not just getting your electric car and plugging it in and calling it done and washing your hands of it and saying, I did my one thing, now I'm a climate hero. Um, Really Mm. trying to show the, the many ways that we can engage and then sustain our engagement in this space, whether those are small incremental actions or you know, really pushing for collective change by engaging with our elected leaders who quite frankly need to hear from more of us about what we prioritize and that we value um, early upfront investments to prepare our communities. So we need to get loud about it is what I'm hearing. Get educated and get loud about it. Yes, and loud in all the spaces. So we don't have to go to, um, you know, to Washington, D.C. There are elected leaders right in your own communities. One of the things I learned that I didn't know is that there are over 500,000 elected leaders in our country. Those are your neighbors. Those are your county commissioners. Those are, in some cases, your water managers, people in soil water conservation districts, right? There are people who are making climate-related decisions or should be making climate-related decisions every day, quite literally in our own backyards. So while we need to think about the levers of power um, across scales, I think we underweight our influence and the connections we can have and the power and influence we can have in shaping the future we want to create 
right in our own communities. And that can create this catalyst of action at the federal level, at the international level, and so on. Well, Heidi, I know we need to let you go early, but we'll continue the conversation uh, with uh, Kenny and with Amdalad. But tell us again, the, the book, The Climate Action Handbook, that's the, name, the title of it, uh, out next week. And where can people find The Climate Action Handbook, Heidi? You can find it online and at your favorite local bookstore. You can always ask for it. Um, okay. And yes, I hope people people find it a helpful tool in their own climate solution journeys. All right. We've been talking with Heidi Roop, and that's R-O-O-P. Heidi Roop, the director of the Minnesota Climate Adaptation Partnership and an assistant professor of climate science at the University of Minnesota, also serves as the University of Minnesota's extension specialist for climate science and adaptation. Thank you for your time, Heidi. So let's take some more calls from listeners. In Isabella, we have Chuck on the line. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you for waiting. What do you want to ask or tell us? Well, I was going to give you uh, my experiences uh, relative to global warming. I'm 80 years old, and I've had sled dogs since 1972. And I've had uh, Kawachi Adventures LLC, which is a sled dog ride business. Mm -hmm. And every time we run our dogs, we write down the weather distance, those type of things. And have you had you, to, to cancel some races because of the weather, or what, how has the weather impacted these sled dog races? Well, we used to have 17 races in the mm-hmm. state of Minnesota, and we started losing them. The first ones we lost were in the Cannon Falls area, and uh, due to weather, they had no mm-hmm. snow. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gradually, it's eaten up a lot of the uh, races we used to have. Now we have about three in the state. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's changed. It's changed. And so what's your que- question for Kenny about this, about uh, what we're seeing? Well, <clears throat> what I've noticed in the last few years, about three, four years now, we're getting more snow again. Mm-hmm. But we're getting, I think, from what I've noticed in my records, I think the seasons have slipped backwards. We get uh, fall extends longer into uh, November, Mm -hmm. where it used to start to get snow in November. We don't get nearly as much snow in November as we used to. And the snow lasts in the spring a little later. Mm. All right, Chuck, uh, let's uh, give Kenny a chance to talk about this. Chuck is keeping his own records. Uh, Kenny, talking about the snow and how his, it has impacted the sled uh, dog races that he's been a part of for many years. And what can you say about what you're keeping track of, what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, Chuck's observation is really good. And uh, this is basically what how we frame the issue because there's all these nuances and, and you can't cover all of them when you're, you're talking to an audience or give a, give a presentation. But we know that over time, the snowfall, that's how much snow is actually coming out of the sky, has mm-hmm. either stayed at fairly high, historically high levels that were established in the 1980s and 1990s at most parts of Minnesota, or has it actually increased uh, beyond those levels. So the amount of snow coming down in most parts of Minnesota is either pretty close to historical high marks or in some cases above it. However, the quality of the snow and the amount of time it stands, it stays on the ground has really changed. So this winter where we've had a continuous snowpack for over a hundred days over much of the state, this is a little bit unusual in recent years because what's been more common is no matter how much snow is falling, you've got these 
really big melt thaw periods in between snowfall events. So you spend a lot of time without high quality snow, mm-hmm. usable not just for, for dog racing, but also for uh, you know other outdoor winter recreational activities. That's been something that's been been really common. And then to Chuck's other observation about the the way that the winter season has been changing over the long term, since about especially since 1970, we've seen wintertime temperatures, and that you could take it whether you're looking at meteorological winter, December, January, and February, or the kind of full winter, basically from when the snow first falls to to when it melts. We've seen that period increase in temperature by between five and seven degrees, depending on exactly how you look at it. That's a really profound warming. That said, when you look at individual months and you kind of take the season apart, what we have seen is that a lot of that warming has actually been at the beginning of the winter season, just as Chuck mentioned. So November, December, and January are our three fastest warming months. When you look at February, it's actually not shown any long-term warming over that recent, you know, over that recent six, seven decade period. And in some parts of the state, you actually see it's not a statistically significant cooling, but February has actually been inching downward in terms of temperature in some places. And then March has also been warming a little bit, but not as much as it's actually warmed a lot, but not as much as those other earlier season months. So when you balance the whole thing out, if you average it out, it results in a lot of warming averaged over all of those months. But when you look at it individually, it is true that we've seen kind of cooler, colder, more winter-like conditions establishing themselves in February than had been typical historically. And that has resulted in kind of a late blooming of the snowpack, which then helps extend winter later into March and sometimes April. And what we don't know is, you know, how long is that little kind of mini trend going to last? Is it mm-hmm. just a, is it a decade long pattern or is it, is it really part of how the climate is changing? But Chuck's observation is right on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a uniform change, but you see kind of some differences when you really look uh, closely at the season. And uh, underlies we think about snow, uh, I follow you on all your social media sites and I, I read your stories. Uh, an interesting story that you wrote recently is about ski resorts, uh, ski resorts creating fake snow. And that fake snow is something that is probably, um, you know, familiar to many Minnesotans uh, who like to go skiing or, or, or snowboarding regular, you know, regularly. They make their own snow. Uh, what is the issue with fake snow, though, for the environment? Yeah, it's super interesting. And thank you for following my work. I follow all of your work as well. (laughs) Um, I think it's interesting because, you know, I I live in New York. I work in D.C. And both New York and D.C. have had their least snowiest winters on record. While, like you said, places like Minneapolis are seeing some of their top 10 snowiest. Um, And these effects are happening to places and, and locations all around the country. So, a lot of ski resorts are trying to adapt to the fact that they're seeing a lot of less snow than there that they normally get. But the issue is that these machines require an enormous amount of energy to operate, uh, much more than like the traditional snow making machines. And they often only cover a very small portion of the ground. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of ironic because because they require so much energy, you're almost fighting warm temperatures by using machines that require a lot of a lot of energy, but 
those machines are contributing to what's making the temperatures warmer. So it's a little bit ironic. Um, And while the machines have been a blessing to ski resorts because, you know, they have more control, a lot of them had started to open their doors sooner because they had more control. They weren't at the mercy of Mother Nature. Um, And, you know, it allowed them to, in some ways, adapt due to climate change. But um, you have to think, well, you're making the long-term issues worse because these machines are contributing to the issue. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed reading that. It's something I had, had not actually given a lot of thought to. Uh, let's take a, a phone call from another listener in Eaton Prairie. Uh, Michael is on the line. Uh, hi, Michael. What did you want to ask or share as we talk about extreme weather and climate change? Well, good morning. Um, first of all, I want to share a comment that is resonates with a couple of the other listeners, one who was originally from Chicago. Mm-hmm. I'm originally from the New York metro area. I've lived here 42 years and kept very careful observations in the tr- Twin Cities area. And I have noticed the minimum temperatures in the winter are steadily rising. But what's interesting is I'm sensing almost a geographic warp. I remember as a kid, we had nor'easters, we had very wet, sloppy, snowy winters. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed here is the winter, the snow quality, the type of snow we're getting here has a interesting parallel to what I experienced as a child in the New York metro area. And when I started to see robins here in the winter, I realized that literally, I think the climate of Minnesota has been transposed uh, by a climate that is five, six hundred miles further south and east. The other point I want to make is, and this is something perhaps that the professor is addressing in her book, is the change in the sense of identity and sense of place. Winifred Gallagher, a New York Times uh, writer, wrote in 93 about the power of place to shape our perceptions and thinking. And I think what's going to happen here, and it's already happening, is that whole concept of up north is being transmuted uh, by the fact that we're losing our evergreens up north, the black spruce are dying, our loons are threatened, our habitat of the north is threatened. And I think this is going to have a very profound impact on the population here going forward. Mm. And I will listen to your comments. All right, Michael. Yeah, we have limited time here. But Kenny, uh, first of all, I'm struck by the fact so many people are saying they're making observations, they're keeping their own records, people are paying attention. Uh, what do you think about what Michael had to say about just this, this, our climate shifting and maybe looking like a climate of an area, you know, a region like near Chicago? Yeah, I mean, it's not far off because, uh, you know, as so, so as things get warmer, you're essentially importing a climate from a different region. Now, it's not quite that simple because there are some things that aren't going to change, like w- our latitude is not changing, which means that the amount of sunlight we receive on a, a, during the peak of summer and at the, the depths of winter, those values aren't going to change. So there are... Soil chemistry isn't going to change, uh, at least not as quickly as the climate. So there's some things that we can never be these other places, which is fine. But uh, it is true. We're essentially importing, you know, uh, a climate. And it is the way that we look at it. If you kind of look at animations of how temperature has changed over time in Minnesota and even how precipitation has changed over time, it's very clear that we are appearing to import a hydroclimate from the south and east. So, you know, you've got great listeners and callers, and they're really making excellent observations. Um, 
the the one thing I would say about the the snowfall quality, you know, we get a lot of snow in this region. It's not as much as you get in mountain regions or other, you know, near some of the Great Lakes, but we get a lot of snow and we are spending more time receiving that snow closer to the freezing slash melting point. And that is actually degrading the quality. So typically we get a lot of powdery snow during the middle of winter. And in this winter, we got a lot of slush. Mm-hmm. So we got the same amount of snow, but we got a lot of slush. It was really the winter of slush because <laughs> we've had all these wet snows and the really fine powdery ones, they've been few and far between. We had a couple of big, good ones, but not as many as you normally have. So really good observation. Thank you. Let's take another uh, phone call. In Grand Marais, we have Christine on the line. Hello, Christine. Hello, Grand Marais. Hello. Hi. Hey, um, I have a question about climate migration. Um, we know the North Shore, Duluth, you know, and on up is, some of the most climate change resistant regions in the U.S. right now. And we're already seeing huge influxes of people coming. So my question is, what can local governments do policy-wise, otherwise, to prepare for this and to also do it from a climate justice perspective that um, cares for folks who are under-resourced, both in the migrators and the people who are already here. So, Christy, what do you mean you've seen a lot of people coming? A lot of people are moving to the North Shore, um, especially since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, people are setting up permanent residence because of changes in mm-hmm. the environment and knowing that here is a place that will stay um, cooler overall. Uh, yeah, and just more climate change resistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, climate refugees, is that the term we often hear, Kenny, when we talk about about that, people moving? Yeah, that, that is the term. And I would say, uh, you know, just climatologically, I think some of these uh, folks opting in, they might be in for a rude awakening because we don't see the same impacts. And I think um, Umdalat probably has a lot to say about the justice element of this. So I want to let her say some things. But I would just say that we don't have the same impacts that you see in California where a lot of people are moving. That's where a lot of our, um, that's where a lot of our new migrants uh, originate or the Northwest. But uh, we have some of the fastest changing climate conditions in the country. So it's, so you have to separate. Minnesota does? Oh yeah. You have to separate the impacts that you see from an already volatile climate in a place like California versus the actual changes, the magnitude of the changes we see in Minnesota. We are the, Essentially, northeastern Minnesota is the fastest warming part of the lower 48. So, uh, and especially during the winter. And so it is really transforming things. So, you know, I think people are going to, there's a little bit of a misnomer there, but I'd love to hear what the other guest Mm. has to say about the the justice aspects of this influx. Mm, mm. And a lot, is that something that you all have conversations about there at the Post, uh, climate justice and climate refugees? Yes, we, we often have conversations like that. And I actually covered a story about this um, uh, earlier this year, talking about, you know, uh, areas that were battered by Hurricane Sandy um, and people, you know, refusing to flee from the ocean despite the ocean encroaching on the land. And, and kind of like you said, it is, a, it is a climate justice issue because a lot of people don't have the luxury to when when things start to get bad due to climate, a lot of people don't have the luxury just to be able to pack up all their things and buy a home somewhere else that's safer and start a new life. Um, but like you said, that has to do with 
resiliency. Uh, it's about changing behavior. And a lot of people who have the means to do so find that changing behavior by simply moving locations. Um, but then there's other resiliency that we need to, I think, encourage and also encourage legislators to participate in, which talks about adapting to the change in climate and extreme weather that you're seeing locally um, and providing resources to people so that those that don't have the means to, to get up and move or, um, you know, to just move across the country, they, they, they're able to stay put but still be able to fight the weather in some ways. It, you, can't, you can't stop extreme weather, but you have to think, okay, how can we work with the conditions that we're experiencing um, and it's about managing the changes. And that's why we, we do a lot of durables, too, about, you know, how to deal with frostbite. What, is, what do those conditions mean? What's the blizzard? Um, how to deal with power outages? You know, it's about informing the public about those issues. But um, like, like the caller said, from a climate justice perspective, it's huge. And you do see a lot of people just moving and leaving. But a lot of people don't have that luxury. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. Right. To, to start over. And I, I'm just curious, Amdalat, in college, you majored in journalism and you, and you have a minor in meteorology and global studies. So as a high school student, were you thinking about about a job like this? That's so funny. <laughs> and I was not. I actually went to St. Paul Conservatory for Performing Artists. And I knew that I wanted to speak to people and I wanted to give groups that had historically been voiceless a voice, but I didn't know it would take me into cover into covering climate and the disproportionate impacts of climate change on marginalized communities. But it kind of fell into place perfectly. I also didn't start my college experience with a meteorology minor. I actually, um, I went to a liberal arts institution on Long Island called Hofstra. And we, you know, since it's liberal arts, we have to take a natural science course. And I took meteorology slash climate change. And I think within the first week, I was speaking to my advisor about how I could add it as a minor because I absolutely fell in love with it. And then looking at the intersections between global climate change and the impacts of, you know, monsoon season in mm-hmm. India and um, impacts like those. It wasn't an intention, but I fell in love with it quickly, and I'm happy to be able to. And it's important. You know, it's on so many. Yeah, on so many people's minds, and we're we're craving more information. And so, Kenny, we just have uh, 30 seconds left. Left. Uh, what give us a hopeful thought about this, Kenny? Uh, as a senior, senior climatologist, what gives you hope each day? Oh wow! I mean, mostly the, the what gives me hope is. I mean, we've, there's a lot of people, there's much more energy focused on fixing this problem. And I, I shouldn't be so vague. The climate is changing very rapidly and Minnesota and other parts of the country are being affected. And the whole world is, has its, you know, everyone kind of has their own symptoms of it. And we are way, way, way behind. So let's just be clear. We are, we are not making adequate progress. What gives me hope is that we have seen, I would say, an explosion, maybe an exponential increase in the amount of people working on this. Yes. I mean, it's just it's yes. just blossomed. So yeah. I don't know where that's going to go. I don't know how long it's going to take for us to right the ship and, and catch up. But, but we're, uh, we're, yeah. we're moving forward and talking about it and sharing information is a big part of it. Right. Thank you both for sharing your expertise. I so appreciate it. And again, thank you to our listeners for your great questions. We've been talking with Kenny Blumenfeld, the Senior Climatologist at the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, and Amdalat Ajasa, a weather and climate reporter for The Washington Post. 
Earlier this hour, we heard from Heidi Roop. She's the director of the Minnesota Climate Adaptation Partnership and a professor at the University of Minnesota. Today's conversation was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.